Anyway, take out your first lesson, please. I want to finish up with just a couple things. I'm hoping to uh, get into the, uh, uh, the early part of the next lesson as well. Um, just quickly, we'll cover some of this. You could have read it on your own, but the title of the book of Genesis, where does it get its title? The Hebrew title is Bereshit, meaning in the beginning. Okay, so the first words of the book of Genesis are, are used as its title. That is often the case in regard to the books of the Old Testament. The Greek word genosis, meaning origin or source, uh, the Greek name is found in the Septuagint, a second century BC translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Okay, we mentioned this earlier, translations are important because it gives us an idea of the meanings that the words were assigned by people who were contemporaneous to the writing. Okay, sometimes words change meaning. How many of you know that words change meaning? Sure they do. And uh, some things you could have said 15 years ago and be comprehended now in our culture, you could be misunderstood. So the same is true of every language. So it's good once in a while to look at uh, some of the ancient translations. The Greek word genosis comes from the Hebrew term toldot, meaning generations, and is frequently used in Genesis. Now, how many of you have ever encountered the begat generation, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat? Okay, those things are very important, although when you're reading the Bible through, it's kind of hard to go through all of that. You can't pronounce the names. You don't know who most of those people are. Those things are very important. So sometimes the Jews looked at the book of Genesis as a book that justified their genealogical existence. And that is very important in Judaism because when we get to the purpose of the book, you'll see why that is. English, of course, the word Genesis taken from the Greek title, the book of origins. The title emphasizes both the beginning of time in our created realm and the origin of our created realm. Genesis sets the record straight. Now, this is something very important. Um, some Christians get all worried when the, an archaeological discovery is made, for instance, the Ugaritic tablets, and they describe things that sound like the book of Genesis, and they get all worried. And they said, well, did Moses just borrow the information from a neighboring culture? The answer to that is no. The neighboring culture was aware of things. They had traditions that they passed down. And the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, is given as a polemic to set the record straight. So uh, that's all, all of the things that make up the word Genesis, or what we call the book of Genesis. It deals with all those issues. All right, who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses. Now, really important. The book of Genesis is not a collection of verbal traditions passed down around a campfire and then finally somebody wrote it down. That would be utterly impossible. By the way, when people present the Bible that way, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, this was oral traditions and they sat around a campfire like a bunch of hippies and then uh, someone finally got the bright idea of writing it down. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not only historically inaccurate, but it goes against what the Bible claims. Okay, in the book of Genesis, as you'll see in a moment, has a very specific pattern. In fact, several of them. Now, when I talk about the pattern of the book of Genesis, the plan of it, the outline of the book and those kind of things, I want you to understand something. I could speak on that for multiple sessions, but you would get bored of it. So I'm going to throw out an example to you. 
For example, the number seven, as used throughout the book of Genesis, multiple times or multiples of seven are used. And several uh, scholars have cataloged these things, indicating that there was a plan and a reason and a message behind it. So sometimes when you, when you hear a secular person talk, well, I don't believe the Bible, that's just a book written by a bunch of old white men to enslave the world, that nothing could be further from the truth. But yet a lot of people in intellectual circles, secular circles, they try to write off the whole Bible that way. When you understand that the Hebrew, and it is reflected to a degree in our English translation, when you understand that the Hebrew has a very specific presentation and plan, you know that this was not a, uh, the culmination of a group of verbal uh, traditions that were passed on, oral traditions passed on. So number one under human penman Moses, the Bible does not name Moses as the author of Genesis because he was obviously not an eyewitness to the events, okay? That would be obviously true. The ultimate author is God himself. Pause right there. That is what we believe. Someone mentioned to me this morning that when you start with God, all things are possible. It's very, very true. If you deny the existence of God, then you, if you take the first verse, the first few words, in the beginning, God. If you deny that, then you might as well set aside your entire Bible. There's no real purpose to it, unless you just look at it as a, a historical curiosity. All believers see Moses as the human instrument with the words inspired by God. The Jews always regarded Moses as the penman and always included Genesis in the Torah, the five books of Moses. Both the Old and New Testaments affirm Moses as penman of the Torah, and Jesus affirmed that over and over again. So if there were something that were apprehended by earlier generations that was error, Jesus would have corrected that. He did so on several occasions, most famously when he said, uh, it has been said by uh, the Jewish folks of old time, this, 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 and this, but I say unto you this, 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 and this. Okay, so he corrected assumed errors. That was never a correction. The first five books of Moses, Genesis being the first one, were penned by Moses himself. Now, this is a good point, point C, the theme of the book of Genesis. You'll notice I've put a name there, Fruchtenbaum. Okay, he is a converted Jew. He is a Bible scholar par excellence. To tell you the high regard that I have for him, um, it is my goal to own every book he has ever written. He is, he is a thorough and excellent uh, author. I recently bought his Bible commentary on the entire book of Isaiah. And some time ago, years ago, I was kind of going through the book of Isaiah in, in I think, Wednesday Night Church. And I really struggled to find an author that took it seriously, really struggled. I mean, a lot of Reformed theology and a lot of the, the, the Reformed scholars, they may be great Hebraists, but they weren't very good theologically. And so uh, when I found the volume, and it's about this thick, if you want some good reading, uh, when I found the volume on Isaiah, I purchased it immediately, and though I'm not studying that right now, I paged through it and was again delighted at the level of scholarship and the level of accuracy. What I like about Arnold Fruchtenbaum is he takes the Bible seriously and he takes the Bible literally. And you remember from last time, we talked about what it means to take the Bible literally, not just the words, but the entire context
context of Scripture. So Fruchtenbaum, who is uh, Jewish in his origins, he's converted to Christ, he's a great, great Christian man, a great scholar, he gives us a list of several potential themes. Through Gen Though Genesis is a book of beginnings, the larger and general theme is blessing and cursing. That's interesting, but you'll see that as you go through the book. Genesis explains the beginning, but it goes on to explain the basics of God's dealing with mankind. And someone has pointed out, and I think in his commentary on Genesis, he has a list of uh, the firsts of Genesis, you know, the first mention of this, the first mention of that. And it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a very good list. So if you're interested in that, you'll want to buy that book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, blessing includes a selection of the Hebrew people, who in turn would bless all the nations of the world. Blessing also includes the seed and land promises given to the patriarch, to, uh, patriarchs, to Abram, Isaac, and to Jacob. And so you have in Genesis, God's creating the world, God's creating man, and the initial uh, organization, the initial setup, if you will, is God is going to rule over man. Man will be in the garden. Man will expand the garden. Man will multiply. All of that, you know, got off the rails when Eve, Adam and Eve committed their sin. That all got off the rails. And then God dealt with smaller groups of people, then finally uh, turns to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And so that is a pattern through the Bible. Uh, someone said the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Yes, it is. God starting over. Huh? Now I should say something that might strike some of you as a little controversial, because we'll get into that in our next lesson. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but something happened. Huh? The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the waters. But then the first day of creation, by the way, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that God made the heavens and the earth on the first day. Jews don't believe that. We've kind of bootlegged that into the first day. I'll have much more to say about that. What did God do? He created light, and then all the wonders of creation. When we get there, and I love how I just get your attention. I love how I get your attention. When we get there, in my, my personal leaning, okay, and remember how we talked about there's room for disagreement over these things? Don't, don't get mad, okay? I just disagreed, Pastor Mine. He said, I'm going to get mad. I'm going to take my toys and go home. Okay, how childish, okay? There's room for, there is room for disagreement here. But it seems like to me the first day of creation is a do-over. Was there another do-over? Was there another judgment when the earth was covered with water? Was there? Yeah. Noah's. Noah's Ark. That was a do-over with a new family. Well, what happened after that? Things kind of went astray then, later on. Tower of Babel and all of that. God disinherited the nations. What happened after that? He chose one nation, Israel. What happened after that? There was one progenitor, Abraham, okay? And there's a series of God doing things over. Why would God do that? Because he wants to save as many people as possible. It's a wonderful story of grace, and I won't get into that any, any further. I've got you wondering now. 
All right, so the theme, blessing and cursing. Cursing includes God's reaction to the world's condition in Noah's day, the flood judgment, his promised expulsion of Canaanites from what became the land of Israel, etc. In Genesis, God blesses good actions and curses evil actions. So if you're looking at the entire book, not just the first 11 chapters, it's certainly true in those chapters, but if you're looking at the entire book, that is a thematic thing that you'll find. Okay, what about the structure? What about the structure? There are three ways to view Genesis as a literary work. But the fact that I'm talking about a structure means that there is structure, okay? This did not just happen by accident. It was a planned and divinely inspired literary device or, or, or pattern that was used in our understanding of the scripture. It's very clear in Hebrew and it is also clear in English. So I'm going to give you three possibilities. Now, all of them work just fine. So if I was going to teach the, the entire book of Genesis, I could choose any one of these threes, three as a general outline. But what I'm trying to show you is that Genesis as a literary work has very specific structure. Okay, the two division structure, what is that? The idea that Genesis 1 through chapter 11 mark the first portion and deals with the origin of the world, the human race, nations, etc. Scholars estimate the time period covered in this section to be about 2,000 years. Okay, that again, that is an estimation only. So that would be the first part, Genesis 1 through 11. That is what I plan to address in our, our lesson. Genesis 11, verse 10, through the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 26, focuses on the origin of one particular nation, the Hebrew nation Israel. The focus is on four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. This section addresses the beginning of the Jewish race. The time period covered in this section is only 193 years. Wow. So the first 11 chapters covering approximately 2,000 years, and again, those numbers are very approximate, but then the bulk of the book of Genesis focusing on 193 years of human history. Why would that be so important? Because again, you have God bringing down things to a focus where he will use Israel as his tool of redemption in the Old Testament period. So that's what is called the two division structure. The other structure, the Toldot structure. The Toldot structure emphasizes the 11 family histories given in Genesis. So that has to do with your genealogical record. Okay, so you can look at the book of Genesis, you can find there's these different genealogical references or family histories that are given. Uh, each section begins similarly with the words such as these are the generations of. Each of the 11 toldots or genealogy section explains what became of that family line. Okay, so sometimes you'll, you'll find these are the generations of and then there's an odd name and you're like, well, who is that? That's fine, because it's not emphasizing that person necessarily as the progenitor. A great exception, of course, would be Abraham. It's not emphasizing that person as a progenitor of the family. It's showing you what happened to those people over the years. How did they divide? How did they split? This becomes very important in Genesis chapters 9 and chapter 10. So it just explains what became of that family line. Kind of like, like, uh, like it's kind of like old Facebook. Really old Facebook. What happened to so-and-so? Look it up on Facebook. Okay, this is, a, this is a divinely inspired record of these family lines. For a thorough explanation of the total structure, see Fruchtenbaum, pages 5 through 9. It's very detailed. And then there's also a geographical structure that can be discerned. And again, you could teach this. Not, not one of these is right, one of them's wrong. 
You could use any of these structural outlines to help in teaching the entire book of Genesis. So uh, beginning in Babylonia, chapter Genesis 1 through 11, the Fertile Crescent region, then Canaan, Genesis 12 through 36, and then finally Egypt, Genesis 37 through 50. So you could actually divide the book in three, in parts of three, based on its, uh, its uh, geographical structure. The structural divisions demonstrate the planned unity of the entire book. Genesis is not random accounts. It is a carefully structured literary work. Okay, it is, it is absolute ignorance to just declare these were oral traditions that someone wrote down around a campfire. Okay, nothing could be more ignorant than that. This book shows an incredible, and by the way, a very ancient book, not the oldest book of the Bible. Likely Job is the oldest book of the Bible. But this very ancient book shows an incredibly high level of development and literary expertise in this very old book of the Bible. Viewing Genesis from the standpoint of all three structures uh, is legitimate. The structures indicate the intentionality of the writing. Genesis is not a bunch of random stories cobbled together by an editor. Its structure demonstrates purpose, a purposeful plan going from uh, the general to the specific. Okay, did everyone get that? Now, the place I want to be. Genesis chapter one. This will be the beginning of lesson one. So if you have your outline, on the bottom of your page, it should say page four. Do you have paginations on yours? Did I write page numbers? Does it have pages? Just look at your paper you got passed out today. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this should have the, who needs one of these? This is, okay, oh, oh, whoa. Okay, let's get this passed out. These are brand new. These are the new lessons, okay? I'm, I'm, last week and this portion of this week's was introductory material. I'm going now into lesson one, okay? Lesson one. So if you gentlemen and, and you all could pass this out, that would be much appreciated. Lesson one, as you're receiving your outline, look at the introduction uh, paragraph I've written on the top. Introduction, Genesis is the foundation of all scripture. That's why it is so important. That is also why it is the constant attack of Satan. Now, I firmly believe this. If you reject the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you're left with virtually nothing as far as the Bible is concerned because you will not have a unified work if you reject that. And so Satan himself does everything that he can to shoot at these 11 chapters, to cause you to doubt them, to cause you to wonder, uh, but they will stand on their own. We'll get into that much more later. It is the foundation of all scripture. Both the Old and New Testaments repeatedly affirm its veracity. The New Testament refers to Genesis approximately 200 times with 165 direct quotations and approximately 100 of these are references from Genesis 1 through 11. So why, why would you put that in there? Because if you decide to not believe the book of Genesis, you cannot trust the New Testament. I hope you heard that. You can't trust it because it is quoted so many times. And 100 of the 165 references quoted in the New Testament, those quotations, 
100 of those come from the first 11 chapters. So those quoting this, if the first 11 chapters are somehow inaccurate, those who are quoting this then are quoting from a work that is inaccurate, and we would never believe that. It undermines your New Testament to not believe in Genesis 1 through 11. For excellent introductory information on Genesis, the book of Genesis by Fruchtenbaum, please order that if you want to really dig in deep. Dr. Fruchtenbaum's work will serve as a major source for these lessons. Not all of them I have, I believe, in my home at least a dozen Genesis commentaries that I'm looking at, okay, both older ones and newer ones. Just for the record, apart from Fruchtenbaum, the older ones tend to be more accurate. Some of the newer ones like to explain things away, which is what we're not doing in our class. So believing, if you notice the first words, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God, okay? Believing in God is the beginning of faith. By the way, the Bible demands faith. God has always demanded faith. Faith is the first and irreducible minimum of man's response to God. Look at the verse I've quoted, Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Okay? You cannot come to God without believing in God. That's a requirement. Old Testament... New Testament, faith has always been the foundation of everything. I believe. Well, Pastor Monty, I struggle with that because I'm a, I'm a very wise and intelligent secular person and I don't believe. Oh, you really don't believe? I struggle with that. You do believe. You don't believe in God. You believe in science that changes its opinion all the time. You believe in Dr. Dudley so-and-so who has multiple degrees somewhere, you believe in him. I asked someone a while back uh, who works in the science realm, in the um, uh, PhD in, in uh, research for Eli Lilly, I asked them, I said, well, how do you prove that? They, we were talking about something, not the Bible per se. How do you prove that? Well, Pastor Monty, all of this has been affirmed by peer-reviewed studies. Oh yeah? But who were the peers? And who's getting paid? I think all of us in this room, I'm not trying to promote cynicism, I'm not even trying to promote skepticism, but I am trying to promote, be very, very suspect of what today they call the experts, because the experts change their mind over and over again. I'm not, I think you should read all that material, I think you should weigh it, but I think fundamentally you should, you should not be forced to believe just because it's an expert or the person has a PhD behind their name. Well, God says this, the, the very foundation of everything, you believe in him. Believing in God is where it all starts. If you, well, Pastor Monty, I, I just can't believe in God, then I say this very kindly but firmly, then I can't help you. You'll believe in something. Every person in this room will believe in something. You should believe in God. So <laughs> while intellectual arguments for the existence of God may be helpful to some skeptics, okay? And if you were to go to a, a, a theology proper volume, The Theology of God, they will list probably six or seven intellectual arguments. And some people like to, to dig through that. I didn't put them here. That's not my purpose in this lesson. But some people like to look at those arguments, you know, the argument from design, which is obvious. This world has a design to it, okay? Everything has a design. That should be obvious. The, the, the possibility of a Big Bang randomly occurring in the universe 
and all of the order and structure being what it is today from the movement of the planets and the universe down to the structure of your inner ear. The and by the way, the structure of your cellular level. And now things they're discovering that are smaller than the cell. The atomic level and things that are discovering that are small, they're, they're discovering that are smaller than the atom. The structure of all of that and the design of all of that screams of a divine creator. And if you, well, Pastor Monty, no, it doesn't. It just all happened. Boom! And there it was. What are the chances of that? They're not. They're not. Creation demands a creator, and therefore I should find out who this creator is. So there are intellectual arguments that could be brought forth for the existence of God, but uh, we just begin by assuming his existence. The Bible was written to God's people, not to skeptics. Now, that's a really interesting point. I'm going to pause there. What, who's the Bible for? God's people. Believers in the Old and the New Testament, eight ages. That's who the Bible's written for. Well, Pastor Monty, you know, uh, the Bible's written for everyone. Yes, everyone in general can read it. But Revelation is specifically directed at God's people, at people with believing faith. In uh, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul argues that those who are not believers will struggle in understanding the Scripture. Why? because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit to enlighten them about Scripture. So they may be able to read the words, but they'll not understand the meanings. And so all of those things are important in regard to the matter of faith. In the beginning, what is the beginning? The beginning is the period of time as opposed to eternity. Time began from the human perspective when creation began. And those are not careless words. Those are very careful words. Uh, so when, when did time begin? Well, Pastor Bonnie, you know, time began when the earth, the moment the earth was created. Hmm. Time began on the first day. Because in the Jewish thinking, it was essential that their day was based upon the rising and setting of the sun. And it was essential that that would mark time. And so while the sun was not created until later, there was a light source created on the first day that would be the earmark of time. Now listen carefully. We are talking about time in relation to human beings. Does everybody follow me on this? With, with God, the Bible says that a thousand years are as a day and a day is a thousand years. That's God's perspective. Our perspective is time, and we think in the realm of time. When we look back at history, we think of epochs of time of human history. Uh, but there was a time before there was time. It's a good statement. Someone should write that in their notes. There was a time before there was time. Genesis is dealing with time and how all of that began, okay? So in the beginning, God uh, is the beginning of time as opposed to eternity. God created, very important here. The Hebrew word is bara, and it is, it is exclusively used of God. Never is man said to bara anything. Okay, that's really, that's, that's, that's ultimate and final. You cannot create something out of nothing, nor can you create something different, entirely different, out of something that exists, that is beyond your ability to do so. Barak can mean creation out of nothing, such as the heavens and the earth, or creation, creation out of something. God's creating man of the dust of the ground, but it is always, when that Hebrew word is used, it is always and only an act of God. It is one of God's uh, prerogatives. It is one of God's characteristics to create from nothing. When God creates, the act is always new, fresh, and good. 
That's Fruchtenbaum 29. God's Barah activity is always positive and commendable. Barah has the idea of shaping and forming and transforming as God created man from the dust of the ground. God created Barah, the heavens and the earth, animal life and man. Those are the specific things in Genesis 1 that were created by God. Really important to understand this. When, what happens in Genesis 1.1 is that God called the universe into existence and he created the universe, this is a Latin term, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Which, Pastor Money, why do you say it was created out of nothing? Well, I'm going to let you read Romans 4.17 and Hebrews 11.3. Okay, now point D, very important, and then I'll dismiss you for church. The heavens were created before the earth. This includes the universe, planets, suns, stars, galaxies. Heavens is plural, referring to both the first heaven, the atmosphere, and it looked different in that time from what it looks like today, and the second heaven, the stars and planets. Earth, as differentiated from the heavens, earth would eventually become the dwelling place of man. So as we shall see, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is an introduction to the six days of creation, now listen carefully, and some of you are going to just royal, and then I'm going to pray and leave. <laughs> Why? What verse? What did you say, Rudy? It says heaven. Heaven. God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, typo. Cross it out. Typo. I'm not trying to trick you, Rudy. Okay. But, yeah, you should. You should. But the bottom line is this, that God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, I think it's plural in Hebrew. I'm going to check on that. Okay, God created the heaven and the earth. And then what happened? Something happened. Bum, 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 bum. Pastor Monty, are you hinting that you might prefer the gap theory? Maybe. Ooh. Some of you get really worried about the gap theory. Let me tell you something, because you're going to read forward. Let me tell you something. It is not an excuse for evolution. It can't be. Okay, it is not an excuse for an old age of dirt. It can't be. Let me throw something else at you. Fundamentalists, those who have most conservatively believed the Bible, accepted the gap theory for many, many years. Let me throw something about where, where was it popularized? C.I. Schofield, remember C.I. Schofield? Do you, how many remember the Schofield Reference Bible? Mm -hmm. It is not an error or theologically wrong to accept that. I had many professors at Bob Jones University who did, and it is not error to not accept it. We're going to talk about two different options. So this is where it gets optional. But now, just when I get to where I wanted to be, I have to pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for an opportunity to look deeply into the word. I pray, Father, you'll speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to learn things and to really look at things in maybe a different way that challenges our thinking and that opens our curiosity. Bless the morning service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks. Mosey on.